uh, we are in week three of a five-part series. Uh, essentially what we're doing is we're walking through some of the parables of Jesus that enlighten us to understand Jesus better. Um, and that might be kind of obvious or intuitive, but basically what Jesus would do is he would talk, and as he would teach, um, he would teach in parables. And the parables, interestingly, uh, were for two purposes. For one group of people, it was to enlighten some things about God, and for another group of people, it was to confuse some things about God. When people talk about parables, oftentimes it's, you know, Jesus wanted to bring complete clarity about God. And that's partly true. But for other people, um, it was confusing. So as, I, as we're going through this morning, if you're, you know, kind of listening and you're saying, man, I have no clue what you're talking about, I have no clue what you mean. The good news is that was part of Jesus' point. Because when Jesus spoke, especially in parables, the idea was he wanted the people who really wanted to know he wanted the people who were really and authentically interested to seek out the ideas and the answers. And in fact, when Jesus spoke in parables in the New Testament, we said this last week, he gave about 40 different parables. And of those 40 different parables, he only explained two of them. That means 38 of them are left to us to understand and to figure out. Now, as Jesus did this, as he spoke in parables and as he taught... Um, he would start almost every parable uh, with a similar sentence or statements, and it was something along the lines of, depending on your translation, the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, let me tell you something that perhaps you don't know. Let me tell you something that perhaps you maybe think you already know, but I need to bring into clarity or into focus some things about God. In other words, he would talk to a very religiously informed audience and say, the implication of, I've seen you act, and I've seen you interact. Maybe I've seen you pray, maybe I've seen you worship, maybe I've seen you interact with God in whatever interaction that you have. Maybe I've heard you talk about God, but let me tell you some things, let me bring into clarity some things that I've heard or that I've seen that I think that you have gotten wrong or perhaps been a little bit off on. And honestly, that would be offensive if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus said it. And what happens is, is as Jesus gives these parables, he talks to a people and to a people group who have had some things about God mistaken or misrepresented. Now, the interesting thing is that is not uncommon. In fact, that's incredibly common um, throughout culture, throughout religion, throughout whether it's Christianity or not Christianity. What I mean by that is this. If you study religion, you study religion in almost any people group at any place in time, um, God is symbolic of one of three things. In fact, if it's one God or if it's many gods, here's kind of what God has a tendency to represent to different people groups. It's either what that people group is afraid of, what they need, or what they wish they were. What they're afraid of, what they need, or what they wish they were. This is why when you study different religions, you'll see that across the board, God is the definition of what we need, what we're afraid of, or what we wish we were. If you ever study, you know, ancient religions, you know that lots of people believed in a rain god. You know why? Because they needed rain. If you ever go to the ancient Mayan ruins, you'll learn a lot about the ancient Mayan religions. You know what one of their gods was? One of their most, you know, uh, prominent gods was the jaguar. You know why? Because jaguars ate people. And they were afraid of jaguars, so they esteemed jaguars as a god. On the other side of it, it's what we esteem that we wish we were. Now, to be truthful, this is a little bit more of an intellectual person's God. What I would attribute, what I wish I was, the personification or the perfection of myself. Um, which means that for all of us, this is why when you read about the New Testament, or when you read the Old Testament especially, and you see some things about God that are difficult to explain, we avoid them. 
This is why for many of us, when we see a world of suffering, when we see a world of pain, when we see a world where starvation exists, AIDS exists, where incredible suffering exists, and we see a God, or we hear of a God who is all-sufficient and all-loving, we have a difficult time reconciling a loving God in a world of pain and a world of suffering, even though the Bible addresses it. We have a difficult time because if we were to project ourselves to God, if we were to say, if I was God, this is what I would do. Now, this isn't a new problem. In fact, for those of you guys who you studied religion um, or if you studied philosophy, especially at Florida State, um, somewhere around the three or 4,000 level of your classes, um, you've probably heard of a guy named Ludwig Feuerbach. Now, Feuerbach was a 19th century philosopher. He essentially, uh, he was born in Germany, and kind of contemporary of, of Charles Darwin, and Feuerbach would be one of the guys who lay what, was, what would be the philosophical or what is the philosophical groundwork of contemporary atheism in the world today. And Feuerbach had this understanding that as he viewed religion in their day, which is really similar to our day, as he viewed religion in their day, and specifically Christianity, he wrote a book called The Essence of Christianity. And in The Essence of Christianity captures what he saw as the people's God. In fact, this is, this is, how, this is how Feuerbach said it in The Essence of Christianity. He said, religion, at least the Christian, and now he was very critical and very, you know, had a lot of critiques of the Christian religion specifically. This is what his, his understanding was. Religion, at least the Christian, is the relation of man to himself, or more correctly, to his own nature. In other words, Feuerbach would say, as I've seen people, and as I've seen religion, and as I've seen people relating to God, here's what I have observed. That people's God is reflective of people themselves. That your God and my God is a reflection or a projection of who we view and how we view ourselves. But he would go on to say a couple more things. The divine being is nothing else than the human being, or rather, the human nature personified, freed from the limits of the individual man and made objective. In other words, when you view God, he would say, When you view God, here's how you view God. You view God, I view God. We all have the tendency and the temptation to view God through the lens of how would I see a projected, perfected image of myself. If I could take the characteristics that I like, if I could take the characteristics of human nature and I could perfect them and I could purify them. That's how we see God. He said, I.E. contemplated... Back one. There you go. I.e. contemplated and revered as another and, and a distinct being. Keep going. All the attributes of the divine nature are therefore attributes of the human nature. In other words, God is simply, God is simply a projection of man's perfection of himself. He would summarize it in this next statement right here. Such are a man's thoughts and dispositions, and dispositions such as his God. Consciousness of God is self-consciousness. Knowledge of God is self-knowledge. He continued. By his God thou knowest the man, and by the man his God. The two are identical. In other words, you want to know who you see God as? Look at yourself. You want to know how you see yourself? Look at how you view who God is and who God should be. This is why for most of us, this is why for most of us, if we were to do a fill-in-the-blank, 
And you would, and I was, you know, we passed out a church survey, and on the bottom of it said, you know, God is blank. Ninety-nine percent of us, ninety-five percent of us, would say God is. Okay, that was that was kind of back and forth. Love, God is love. A couple of us dealing with some some other, you know, mental health issues, we would say, you know, judgment, wrath, you know, something like that. But for most of us, we would say, we would say, we would say, God is love, and you know why? Because if we were God, and the Bible does describe God as love, the Bible does describe God as holy, the Bible does describe God as, as a judge, as righteous, but if we were God, we would predominantly want to see ourselves as love. And that is true. That is accurate. But for all of us, what this means is we all have the same temptation, we all have the same tendency that the early church did, that the earlier followers of God did, that though they were religiously informed, they had a projection of who they thought God should be, and who they thought God was, and who they thought that God is, and how he interacts. And so Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is like, in other words, the person of God, the authority of God, the redemptive plan of God, the way that God interacts, the way that you ought to see God is like. A.K.A. I've seen you pray. I've seen you talk. I've seen you worship. And let me clarify some things. And it may be offensive, but let me clarify some things about God that perhaps aren't clear. Now, what's interesting about this morning is as he launches into this parable, I think by and large we understand the principle of this. I think, by and large, we understand conceptually what Jesus is saying. In fact, I think most of us would see it and agree with it. For us, where I think the misalignment happens this morning is in the application or the implications applied to what this verse in this parable means. Now, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 13. Um, we're going to knock out just a couple verses this morning. Matthew chapter 13, three verses, two parables that Jesus is going to go through. Now again, as Jesus talked, you know, incredibly religiously informed, as Jesus talked, it was, let me tell you some things about God, let me clarify some things about God. And he starts his sentence with every, almost every parable, verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, in other words, God is like, God is similar to, treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In other words, he says, let me kind of tell you a, a, a little brief story. Let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you an example of what God is like. God is like a man who is digging in a field, and we don't know if he's digging like on purpose or it's on accident. A lot of people say it's kind of like this, you know, not really intentionally. He's not a treasure hunter, you know, that had a little beep, 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 which was my, kid, my dream as a kid to go to the beach and find, I thought I'd find a car somewhere under these... So anyways, it's a side story. But, you know, he, he, it wasn't necessarily this intention, or perhaps it was, but it probably wasn't this intentional, I'm going to find. But nonetheless, a guy's digging in the field. As he's digging in the field, why is he digging in the field? Who knows? Ask Jesus when you die. But he's digging in the field, and as he's digging in this field, he finds this treasure. And it says, in his joy, he sells everything he has and goes and buys the field because that, compared to what he had, is so incredibly valuable. Now, we get the parallels, and what they understood too intuitively was that when Jesus spoke in parables, one of these things is God and one of these things is us. One of these things is God and one of these things is us. And they understood and they knew, similar to us, that the parallel here is that he's saying, God is like, 
The gospel is like a treasure that's buried in a field. That when you find it, it has so much more worth than anything else that we have. That you'd sell everything and get it. Now, let me kind of define a term real quick. When I say the gospel, when I say when we get that, when we understand that, essentially the understanding is is that you and I in that, or you and I to define the gospel a little bit more clearly for anybody who kind of you know, is relatively new, because that's a very you know, ubiquitous church word. The gospel is essentially the understanding that you and I are all sinful. We all share this, this, this human condition called sinfulness. Our sinfulness makes us fundamentally incompatible with God because God's holiness. God is holy, he's pure, he cannot have sin in his presence. That's why we can't good person ourselves into God's good graces. I can't just be, you know, a positive and good and do some good deeds. And at the end of the day, the good outweighs the bad. The problem is I always still have bad. And so God saw that. He saw the fact that I am sinful. He saw the fact that I had rebelled against him. He saw the fact that I should be condemned because of my rebellion. But he didn't hold that against me. In fact, he did the opposite. He paid the price that I couldn't pay because with anything, if there's a wrongdoing, there is a price that's associated with that wrongdoing. Similar to, if I take your car and I wreck it, then you're at least probably going to expect me to pay the deductible. If I you know, have your house and you just got brand new hardwood floors and I just scuff them all up because I decided to have a bunch of people over and we're a bunch of Neanderthals, you know, and all of a sudden you got marks, you're going to expect me, hey, fix my floor, do this, make some type, some type of a payment for what you've done. Well, in the same way, God saw us, saw that we couldn't repay him for all the times that we rebelled against him, and as a result, sent his one and only son into the world to die for us, that on the cross, when Jesus hung on the cross, Jesus received the wrath and the punishment and the judgment of God that we should have gotten. And as a result, we get God, that he then rose from the dead to substantiate our faith and to overcome death. Now, what, what he's communicating here is when you get that, you'd sell anything for that. And what's interesting, to me at least, is that when we think about the idea of following God, because for all of us, there's this idea of following God, of finding God, of giving anything for God, that we would probably all agree with, that God has more worth. But when many of us think about actually following God, we view it through the lens of the things that we would lose, not the things that we would gain. In other words, when I say follow God with everything, that your life, that my life is like a blank check, that God, we say whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. You just write it, you cash it, I'll give whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. We think through the lens of all the things that I would have to give up. If I was going to really follow God, I'd have to give up this, this, this dream. If I was going to really follow God, I'd have to give up this hope. If I, if I was going to really follow God, I'd have to give up this relationship. If I was going to really follow God, and on top, on top of that, we think of all things we have to start. If I was going to really follow God, I'd have to start going to church regularly. I'm like, man, 
I made it after the Florida State Miami game. Isn't that enough? That's credit for like a month. You know, come on. That's, that's just, let's just be realistic about this. If I was going to really follow God, they would want, God, you'd want, probably want me to go to community group. And come on, come on, share, you know, 10 people, 12 people, share my feelings. Like, come on, I'm like, God, I don't do that, you know. So if I was going to really follow God, you know, people do crazy stuff. People serve. I mean, they constantly serve. If I was going to really follow God, I mean, this and you know, all that stuff is kind of some, some decent attributes. But if I was going to really follow God, I know some people give. They're generous. I mean, some people give 10%. <laughs> God, that's just unrealistic. That's just that's, that's silly. Do you know how much money 10% is? I mean, come on. And what's fascinating is whatever area of life you're in, there is probably 80 to 90% of your life, 80 to 90% of the things that you hold dear, 80 to 90% of the things that you prioritize, that you would count and say, I would give those things, that I would count and say, I would give those things up compared to God. But there's about 10 to 20% that we love to hold on to. And here's why I think that is. Because we don't understand the value that we have, that we get. We don't, on a transactional sense, understand the comparative value that we get when we get God. You see, conceptually, we understand that. But it doesn't really pass from our head to our heart. I mean, come on. This is like if I were to offer, let's say somebody came in the building this morning, and you're just like loaded wealthy, and you're thinking, thing, and Ben, I haven't given in a long time. And I think so for my giving this morning, I have a Bentley out there, um, and I want to give that to you. But in order to give you, you know, for you to get this Bentley, um, I'm going to need your Prius. <laughs> now, just, you know, kind of, Moment of transparency. I drive a, a V4 P- Prius that purrs like a golf cart when it gets up and running, all right? Um, you know, let's, let's just say, let's just say, you know, beyond that, because you know, I, you know, good gas mileage. Let's say that you drive one of like the 1999, 1998 when Kia had a BOGO Kia deal. Some of you guys don't remember when Kia had a BOGO Kia deal. But at one point, Kia had this BOGO Kia deal. And let's say you drive like this old, couple years, couple, couple not years, decades old Kia. And someone came in and said, hey, I am going to give you this brand new, whatever your favorite car is. Bentley, Lamborghini, you know, ladies, Volkswagen, Jetta, you know, whatever it is that's your thing. That you look at and you say, I will, for me, this is kind of the, 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 kind of the country redneck, you know, meat company part of me. A 67 to a 76 Ford Bronco, like I would give both of my arms for. By the way, if anybody's like, man, I haven't tied in a long time and I have one of those, then we will gladly accept that donation. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. It'll be like both our car. We'll just keep it at my house. Now, imagine, imagine, imagine you're driving the beat up, broke down, whatever, you know, the kind that didn't come with the optional electric windows that you're sitting there rolling them up. The kind that when you press the thing on the dashboard to make the radio go or to change the channel, it just turns on and turns off. It doesn't actually change. It just like has an electrical circuit. And then and the thing that's jacked up, that's kind of a projection because that's my car right now. But let's say you have that car and someone comes in and offers you this incredible I mean, car of your dreams. Not even like, oh, you know, don't be materialistic. No, just, just honestly, in a transactional sense, you and I would both look at that and say, of course. Of course, I wouldn't think about the holes that are in my car. I wouldn't think, you know, man, I'm really going to miss the way my radio doesn't work. You know, oh, woe is me. I'm going to miss so much the way that I have to change my, you know, I'm going to miss the way that this thing doesn't have windows that actually roll up and roll down. They just stay up or stay down, and so I just keep them. I'm going to miss the fact that I don't have a working AC anymore. 
<laughs> we say, no, are you kidding me? Yeah, I'll take that car. And here's why. We would not look at it through the lens of what we lost. We would look at it through the lens of what we gained. The problem is when we seek God, we don't understand the value of what we get when we get God. And so we view the idea of following God, not through the lens that in, I love these three words, what he says. He says, then in his joy, in his joy, in other words, when we get this, when we get the intrinsic value of having salvation, we get the intrinsic value of having a relationship with God, when we get the value of having not just the forgiveness of our sins, not that just the transactional idea that I'll, I am now compatible with God, have eternity with God, but I also, on top of all of that, have a life where I have been invited to intimacy with God Almighty that I can now call, call Him my Heavenly Father and on top of that He has given me all the things that I need that most of the things that I look for in this life I am looking to fill a hole inside of my heart that only God can fill the fact that I'm looking for relationships the fact that I'm looking for my future the fact that I'm looking for comfort is ultimately trying to fill this hole that only God can fill and He has given me joy He has given me life abundantly He says in his joy, he sold everything. Like, are you kidding me? Of course. There's no question. Verse 45, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Now, some people will say this is significant. Some people will say it isn't significant, but it's at least interesting that the first guy seems to kind of stumble upon this treasure. And the second person is in search of it. That describes many of us. Because for some of us, when you came, when you came to the understanding that God sent his one and only son into the world, for many of us, we just kind of stumbled upon it. You weren't looking for it. You weren't thinking about it. You just walked into a church service perhaps because somebody invited you and all of a sudden it made sense. It all of a sudden was this incredible, incredible, life-changing truth. And for some of us, we were looking for it. We were searching. We were searching for something. We were searching what is true, what is real, who is God. And what's interesting is regardless of the motivation coming in, the reaction is the same. Who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, the incredible thing about God, or one of the incredible things about God, is that God doesn't require us to sell everything to get him. We can't earn our way into God's good graces. But what they understood and what we understood is also true. That in following God, it will cost you something, if not everything. And Jesus was never afraid to challenge people. To say, if you want to follow me, sell everything you have, he talked to the rich young ruler one day. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. And the rich young ruler saw all that he had and said, can't do it. 
can't do it. But then there were people like Nicodemus that Jesus looked at. Jesus saw on a tree. Nicodemus, who was an incredibly wealthy tax collector. And Nicodemus, who saw Jesus. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, come down from that tree. I'm going to eat at your house tonight. And everybody looked at him and said, that guy, that guy, are you kidding me? Nicodemus, who's robbed everybody practically. And Nicodemus says, hey, if I've robbed anybody, I'm going to give them back multiple times what I've taken from them. Because I get God. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, today salvation has come to your house. In other words, the attitude and the response of someone who gets this, is, are you kidding me? I would give anything for this. I would give anything to follow this. I would give anything to get this. Now, I think, for many of us, again, the the, 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 the hole in this for us is not that we don't conceptually understand this. I think we just miss the intrinsic value from God, and frankly, I think we get distracted. I don't think everybody decides, you know what, I am going to devalue God. It's that there are so many other things in life that grab my attention. There are so many other things that demand right here, right now, right here, right now, right here, right now. That I lose focus. And I unintentionally trade in this thing of incredible worth for this thing. Or these things of temporal and almost insignificant value. See, the best way I can... um, Describe it as this. You guys all, well, many of you know at least, that I have a, um, I got a 19-month-old daughter. 19 months yesterday. She is the sweetest little girl in the history of sweet little girls, except for she's starting to hit that two-year-old where she cries over everything, which, anyways, that's a side thing. Girls getting emotional when she cries, and that's not like a gender-specific thing. It just, she cries a lot. Anyway, so Friday morning, um, most mornings I have, um, I have kid duty, not every morning, but most mornings I have Ava duty where I drop her off at daycare. Lindsay gets up early and she actually works hard for a living and I just kind of, you know, do my own thing. Um, and so I drop her off in the morning because I've, I've got more time. And so on Friday morning specifically, it's kind of a relaxed morning. I was spending some time with Ava. She kind of wakes up and we watch Daniel Tiger, for those of you guys in the Daniel Tiger neighborhood of life. Um, and as we're sitting there, you know, playing and, and hanging out, she, she's also at the age where she loves to get into anything and everything. Um, they're at the age where you could line up like six things and five of them are harmless and one of them's like, you know, rat poison. And she's like, oh, rat poison. You know, that's kind of the, the, the oh, there's a socket. Let me put my finger in it. The fan, cool. You know, it's, anyways. Um, so this particular Friday morning, um, or two days ago, we're sitting there at our house, um, Ava and I, and she's, you know, playing around in the room and all that stuff. And I'm starting to get ready for work. And as she's uh, doing stuff, she loves to get into her mama's stuff. And so she um, loves to get, for instance, in her mom's, you know, jewelry and shoes. And she loves to get into um, makeup. And so we do this you know, stuff, which, you know, maybe it may not be a good parenting move. But we kind of give her her own thing. So instead of, you know, getting into mom's makeup, we have her own little, like, you know, little kid makeup bag with, like, paintbrushes type stuff and whatever for her to mess around with. Well, this one particular morning, two mornings ago, um, she goes in Lindsay's closet and pulls out this little um, ladybug. I don't know how to describe this. It's like a little pouch, like a little circular pouch, guys. It's like what you would keep jumper cables in, okay? It like half zips open, and you just it, it's a little pouch, and it's got a little ladybug on the front of it. And so I'm thinking, okay, that's cool. Lindsay's a fantastic mother. She is going, she's putting you know, Ava, her own little like Ava jewelry in there, and Ava went to go get her little Ava jewelry out. And so she opens, she hands it to me, and she's the, the cutest little girl. She kills me every time because she's learned how to say please, and you can't say no when your daughter says please. So she says, open peas? And so I'm like, okay, of course. It doesn't matter what's in this thing. I'm opening it because you 
said, please, and I love you. So I open it up, and I see there's some beads in there, and I'm thinking, okay, okay again, you know, Ava, you know, Lindsay has, you know, put this little kid toy thing together for Ava, and so she starts getting them out, and she, you know, puts this one little, real long strand of beads on her, and there's, you know, multiple strands, and I'm noticing there's some beads in plastic, and I'm thinking that's a little bit unusual, and as I look at them, I'm realizing, wait, these aren't beads. <laughs> these are real pearls. Like, these are real, honestly, goodness, pearls. And my 19-month-old daughter's like, you know, she's sitting there like, like waving around in them. And I'm sitting there like, you have this like internal conundrum. Like, I don't want her to cry, but I'm about to have to take these things away from her. You know what I mean? She's just, this isn't, by the way, if you break into our house, we're going to keep them in a different little side pouch. Okay, so don't, don't get any ideas. But, but so I start doing what any good dad would do. I start hiding them. You know, I, 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 so they're kind of like all on the floor. Um, and there's this different strands, and so I start putting them back in the pouch, and, you know, it's kind of like, ooh, look, Houdini, you know, I don't know where I went, all gone, you know, kind of do that little thing, and so she still got this one little strand around her necklace, or one, was, was one strand around her neck, and, um, and so, you know, I kind of, you know, I'm playing with her, I'm throwing her, and I take it off her, and then so you can tell, like, in her little eyes, she's about to, like, start crying, and I'm like, oh, the dog, you know, she's like, dog, you know, and so she kind of, like, walks away and does this whole thing. Now, now, as silly as that might be, and as true as it is, here's what... I think that is exactly what happens with us in God. I think that we don't understand the value of what's around us. We don't understand the value, the intrinsic worth of what happens with God. And on top of that, we get distracted. We get distracted with things that are far less valuable. We get distracted with other things that are going on and don't realize we have these incredible pearls. We have this incredible gift. We get God. We get a relationship with God. We get our heavenly father and nothing else compares to that. But we get distracted because this relationship, because this friendship, because this, you know, dream, this future. We get distracted because I want to feel I want to be valued. I want to be comfortable. And very few of us process it on, I think, an intellectual level. But the reality is, we devalue God and get distracted by the things of the world. And I don't know what area of your life, as you're looking at life, that's true of. But I know for most of us, it's this idea that God, I would follow God, I would give my life for God, unless it costs me socially, unless it costs me financially, unless it costs me relationally, unless it costs me whatever it costs you and whatever the thing inside of you is that holds back and holds back and holds back. And it's not because we're good, not because we're bad people, it's because we don't understand the value that we have in God and we get so easily distracted and Jesus through the parable just communicates but if you get this you would give anything you would see the comparative value and give anything in everything to follow this one thing. So I don't know, you know who you are, where you are, what you're going through, what's your 5%, what's your 10%, what's your 15%, what's your list of things. But I know for all of us, 
A few of us can authentically say, my life is a blank check. God, anywhere you want, anything you want, I'm yours. It's yours. You just say when. You just say where. God, everything I have and everything I am is yours. Now, how we're going to end our time together today is with communion. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you the, the thing that I love about God. Let me tell you the thing that I just, it, it, it baffles me. We don't serve a God. We don't serve a God who looks at us and says, give everything for me. We don't, look at a, we don't serve a God who, said, who looks at us and says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to give everything for me, and I'm not going to give anything for you. We serve a God that saw us and saw the comparative value was far less than he was worth. That means that God did not need us. God was fully sustainable. God was fully glorified. God was God, whether we acknowledged it or not. God does not need us. He never has needed us, but he does choose us. And God saw the comparative value and that compared to him, we are sinful. We are rebellion. As we talked about last week in Isaiah, we are like grasshoppers. And God, before he asked anyone, before he concerned anyone, before he told anyone in the New Testament to say, give everything you have and come follow me, he first gave everything he had for people who didn't deserve it. God did not see us and say, give everything to me. God saw us and say, I said, I am going to give everything for you when I give you my one and only son. I am going to give you the perfect, the spotless, the without blemish, the holy son of God. That is John 14 says, the word God became flesh. God in a bod became flesh and he dwelt among us and God gave us his one and only son as if to say, or not even as if to say, but to say to the world. Before I ask, before I require, before I put this idea out there that you should give everything to follow me because of a comparative value, I am so worth it. I am going to first give everything to you. And so as we take this communion, it's in remembrance that Jesus, on the last night before he died, before he was crucified, before he gave his life, before he took the wrath of God, before he took the judgment of God, he took a piece of bread and broke it and said, this is my body that's given for you. That's about to be broken for you. In other words, I'm about to go first and do this for you. And here's my blood as he would take the cup, which is about to be shed or which is shed for you. And so when you take it, I want you to take it. I want you to eat it and drink it. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. I want you to do this with the understanding that I went first. I'm going to want you to do this with the understanding that I am not going to ask you as people to do anything that I have not done first. Even though comparatively there's no reason I should have and you have all of the reason in the world. And so here's kind of my prayer. The way that we do communion is, you know, we don't do it row by row, but just kind of as the, the band's going to come up in a minute and they're going to play, you're going to come down the center aisle and you're going to you know, kind of tear off a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice and, 
Here's my hope. That as you walk back to your seats, perhaps as you eat it when you walk back, maybe you spend some time sitting and praying, that this reality of God's love for us, God gave everything for us, comparatively had no reason to, but decided to in ways, and comparatively we have every reason to, but sometimes we resist to, that the impacting part of this is that we would give our lives to God because God first gave his life for us. And as you take the bread, and as you dip it in the juice, and as you spend time thinking about it and praying about it, we would be compelled as a people to give our lives entirely to God because there is nothing else more worth it, there is nothing else more valuable, and he went first. And that the love of God would compel the people of God to give everything for God. And so I don't know what that area of your life is. I don't know what the 5%, what the 10%, what the 15%, what the 20% is, what the thing that you look at God and say, I don't know if I could give up that because of God. I pray that God would blow us away with who he is and the love that he has for us. And it would obliterate any holdings that we have of our own life. And we would give everything for God who gave everything for us. And give anything for God who gave everything for our redemption, salvation, and sanctification. So let's pray together.